So this this uh, teaching is for, uh, for the way out of of dukkha, way out of all dukkha, all dissatisfaction, all unsatisfactoriness, all sense of incompleteness, confusion, dissociation, and uh, stress. Mm. This is the hallmark of the teaching. And, uh, and as a intelligent human being, then we have to recognize that as a very uh, key issue for our lives. That's the key issue, because it's going to affect everything we do and say and think if we are somehow stressed, trying to push things away from ourselves, trying to hold on to something, feeling hungry, feeling needy, feeling oppressed. Then everything we do, everything we seem to be, is going to be affected by that. Recognize without too much introspection how that basic pressure affects the way we perceive the world and each other, the moods we have, which very much affect the feelings which affects the thinking, affects the actions. And then we continue like that, and the actions we commit, and the thoughts, and the things we say spiral around, and we reap the results of them. We get embedded in patterns of behavior that are based upon trying to um, defend, protect, accumulate, shove away, and so on. A heightened sense of fragmentation dissociation, alienation, not only from other people, even from even from oneself. Someone doesn't even feel whole in oneself. And so that, um, so this, then when someone starts teaching, like the Buddha, starts teaching about the way out of suffering, the com- way out of complete, way out of all of it, then it's, w- it's something that, you know, we can intelligently kind of resonate with and uh, and so that willingness, that faith to pursue it. So this process of some reasoned understanding and an act of faith. Kind of well I don't really know, but to 
works or not, but we'll give it a try. Faith and effort. Effort. And then the, the sense of uh, receptivity. Uh, to be able to, to be aware of the results of the effort. Uh, if it's going anywhere. If it's not, why not? And uh, so the Buddha gave, of course, hundreds, thousands of teachings on this whole process so that one would actually be keep in mind this basic aim keep in mind a sense of intelligence personal, individual inquiry into one's own experience as it is Um, it's not a it's always that which is pachatang experienced personally, individually within this own field of our own experience not anybody else's experience and then hundreds of teachings on uh, the process of uh, being making oneself more receptive more sensitive more able to to uh, to, uh, to, to receive to look at the results of the effort we make hundreds of teachings of course on the kind of efforts to be made many times and then the awareness to receive the results of the effort. And then the kind of how to navigate with the particular results. We're noticing this seems quite good, but is it, you know, have you got it slightly wrong, or 20% or 50%? Or <coughs> it's kind of, so the Buddhist teachings are a very thorough guide. And of course, there's, as I said, a manifold over 45 years of teaching hundreds of people, maybe even thousands, who knows. And uh, the Buddha was someone who in his own experience, realization experience, actually thought, brought this whole uh, complexity of what a human being can experience, and what he could experience as an ordinary human being, um, down to some some basic key issues, root conditions, fundamental understandings that massively simplified the whole uh, complexity of what our experience can seem to be, which is divided into time and place and situation and um, divided into likes and dislikes, divided into things we're dimly conscious of and fully conscious of, things we're highly motivated towards, things we're vaguely motivated towards, things we intuit, things we think, things we feel with our our, our sense organs, our bodies and eyes and so on. There's a tremendous uh, diversity of experience a human being can have. And the Buddha was someone who, who managed to see where all these things meet and merge and have their roots. In very, in very some some basic principles and basic root conditions. So this actually understanding of things coming from root conditions itself is is uh, you know is a remarkable teaching because then this makes it possible to have a teaching. If everybody's got different roots, you can't have a you can't have a kind of teaching that's going to apply to hundreds of people, thousands of people, maybe millions of people. You know, if, if everybody's kind of a unique model, 
of particular experiences that set them apart from everybody else, then you can't have a teaching that's going to work with all that. It's only on the common ground, the fact that there's a common ground, that it's possible to have a Dhamma, a teaching. And a Buddha is someone who's seen the common ground, remarkable insight to see it, and can present a teaching that it therefore fits. But of course, the teaching doesn't necessarily fit us initially because we seem to be very different from other people, physically different. Mm. Look at some people, but we seem to have different experiences. Mm. And our lives very much gravitate and are highly delineated and, and experienced and poignantly felt by in particular experiences that we've had nobody else or not many other people have had or they it seems that you know my life has been very much me yeah. everybody else had their water pistol taken away from the age of four <laughs> I bet you didn't have that happen to you or couldn't or jealous of his brothers had a yo-yo at the age of five and I couldn't operate mine. I bet everybody else every one of you knew how to operate the yo-yos and I couldn't. So I've been fundamentally wounded <laughs> by that sense of inadequacy with all technical phenomena is established from that <laughs> basic principle. <laughs> but you were probably one of those creeps who were good at yo-yos. And so on and so on and so on. You know? We can look at these the differences in our lives that seem to be most highly and particularly me. Um, when it comes down to actually just witnessing one's mind, you know, you don't see simple root conditions. Often you just see a kind of massive, you see sometimes even unconnected experiences, you know? memories and thoughts and this and that. And which all seem very much me and mine, particularly and peculiar. And it takes a little while for someone cultivating meditation to begin to see the common themes about which underlie these things. And once we begin to see this, then we have a little more faith that, you know, underneath still what seems to be a whole range of seemingly underlying conditions such as... Um, um, different kinds of happiness, excitement, enthusiasm, worry, fears, joys, the even more basic root conditions. And then uh, the Buddha, so also the root conditions of Dhamma, his teaching, you know, you can find all kinds of skillful techniques and systems and so on that, are, that we can see a, perhaps individuals develop for themselves in unique particular ways. But often the Buddha didn't, basically didn't teach these. He wasn't a, he didn't a, you know, all that specialized techniques. He taught the roots of Dhamma, you know, which would apply to everybody. And in his last, um, year of his life, or the last few months of his life, when the Buddha realized he was, death was approaching very soon. There's this uh, story of how he could feel this, this recurring sickness 
of uh, kind of colic and stomach disorders, things like that, coming over him. And he just managed by effort and by his own um, will to just hold it back during the Vasa, the last rains retreat, because he knew he had to stay according to the rules. He had to stay in this one place during the Vasa. And he thought, well, it would be a shame to die here. If once after the Vasa is finished, I can go around and see everybody, see as many of the disciples as possible, so I can give them the last kind of um, exhortation, the basis of the teaching. And this kind of compassion signified as one of the fundamental qualities of a Buddha, ability to put aside his own um, in bodily processes for the welfare of others. But of course, you know, this is the root condition of a Buddha. Buddhas don't, when you read these things in the suttas, the Buddhas don't come across as kind of cheery, happy-go-lucky, slap-you-on-the-back kind of one of the guys, you know, so they think cold seems very cold. Because the Buddha's compassion is a root condition rather than a kind of surface condition. I think we all recognize that sometimes people can be very cheery and friendly on the surface when it comes down to the crunch that uh, it doesn't always work that way. You can't tell the book by the cover. In the Buddha's um, final uh, tour, and around after the bus, he just kept going to different monasteries and different collections of and saying, he said, this is Sila, this is Samadhi, this is Panya. This is, you know, remember this, this is the, this is the thing. You know, in fact, this is, these are the roots of the Dhamma. This is, this is what it is, this is what I teach. And suffering and the cessation of it. Right to the last breath, almost, the Buddha was kind of still giving exhortations. His last words were, remember, all these, all compounded things are impermanent. Keep going, keep practicing, be vigilant, be attentive. You know, it's kind of, um, which is really very poignant um, to have that one of the last possible conscious moment to be devoting it uh, for the welfare of others. And these two, these two offerings. Of all the sense of impermanence of things, something that uh, runs through the Buddha's teachings, impermanence of conditioned things, this, this kind of phrase that there are things that are caused and conditioned. They're not, they're not absolutes. They're not an ultimate reality. And the nature is to be anicca, relative, impermanent, transient, ephemeral. Mm. And this is both a, a warning and also an exhortation, an admonition not to hang on to things, not to expect too much of things, of the nature to change. And also it's, a, it's a, an, ex- an exhortation, it's an uplift, recognizing that there is the possibility for change in our conditioned experience. We can incline from one set to another. We can, we can improve our conditioned existence. So this is you know, the twofold aspect of Buddha teaching is that the conditioned, the karma, the experienced realm that we have to live within can be improved, can be made better. And secondly, that even when it's improved and made better, it should not be 
held on to, not be seen as a possession, don't build upon it, just make use of that goodness, that skillfulness, that improvement that we can experience. And uh, the Buddha, um, this is kind of first is the teachings on karma, on improving our experience, and the second is the is the liberation from experience, from karma, from this cycle of cause and effect. And the means sila samadhi panya, or virtue, basically applied to um, ethical conduct. Samadhi is collecting, composing one's experience so that you're, it's no longer so diversified into out there and in here, into sight and sound and touch and taste, into happy and unhappy, into all these kind of things. It comes together. And it's only when it's really come together into here that we could ever fully be able to experience uh, the roots of things. Otherwise, when it's all broken up and diversified, then we're experiencing the, the, the leaves, if you like, the flowers and the leaves, the kind of the massive um, <coughs> compounded world. The samadhi is essential for that. And panya is the, is the quality that's able to, to look. And these are different things. Um, they all support each other. Mm. So sila, in a way, does separate. It says, this is right, this is wrong. It makes those kind of, it's a karmic thing. It understands the nature of cause and effect. So it's endowed with some qualities of wisdom. And samadhi is that which gathers and collects together. So because of this, it, it gives rise to the feeling of well-being. We feel centered, we feel composed, we feel collected. And uh, so this, the mind itself experiences a great sense of well-being when it's like that. And panya is, is uh, different from samadhi, and its nature is, is not to to collect experience together, but to, in a way, to dissect it, to analyze it, to, to, to keep questioning it. It's a, it's a, so in a way, it's it's that which um, eventually breaks through the web of karma, the web of experience. And it's the liberation, it's the panya, it's that which which leads out, which opens up this experience uh, experience phenomena. And these all go together. Um, the fact that such a thing as sila exists, a morality or virtue exists as a recommended teaching, a recommended experience for our own well-being, um, comes from the understanding and the direct experience that we can all have in that uh, there has been wholesome and unwholesome actions on one level, is that whenever any unwholesome action leads to a kind of, it's it literally unwhole, it leads to a fragmentation. Um, so, for example, when there's in, intense, we can see this with intense greed or hatred, it very much localizes us. We think of ourselves, or not just even ourselves, but one particular aspect of ourselves as being most important, more important than anything else. 
particular feeling or a particular opinion suddenly dominates us. We must have it supported, feed it. And other things, other people, other concerns are dismissed. And uh, so when the mind is, is, is saturated with these things, then we become callous, indifferent, uh, selfish. We lack empathy. We're not able to see reality in anything like a balanced light. It's me, and everything else is just the background. So this is a fragmentation, isn't it? This is a kind of distortion of reality, because actually, in, in real terms, it's not like that. No way in which this, this body can separate itself from the planet and exist without it. There's no way in which um, this consciousness can just kind of dissociate itself from uh, sense contact through, through, through greed and hatred. So this is an illusion. It's a fallacy. And so the fact that and the, the fact that the, the unwholesomeness is actually um, illusory, and eventually, and because it's illusory, it's frustrating and doesn't provide us with any real lasting uh, ease or gratification is a sign that unwholesomeness is actually um, is that which is is not basic it's not fundamental it's 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 maybe programmed but it's not fundamental it's uh it's a continual distortion that occurs so the fact that uh, unwholesome karma, unwholesome activity, is this way uh, shows us that that all sense of uh, increased uh, reality and authenticity and completeness in ourselves must be based upon wholesomeness, because anything else is is going to be a distortion, and that becomes clearer. So that is always the clear message that comes through and we, we test it out with our own experience. We test it out with some kind of definition of virtue and values that we want to establish for ourselves to feel good, to feel right, to feel we don't have to defend, we don't feel guilty, we don't have enemies. You know, so we some sense of, and then what's the result? It's some kind of calm is the result. Some sense of ease is the result some diminution in stress is the result. So this is something you keep checking out and testing out. And as you meditate more, you get then you the sense of the, the kind of sharpening of the attention um, that comes through practices of, of mindfulness. Mean that one can see this more clearly. And the wisdom that comes from that is that which we remember We've seen it, we remember it, and therefore wisdom is that which remembers and allows us to build upon that basis. Because um, a lot of unwholesomeness is so, um, is, is strongly uh, programmed. So uh, when we experience stress, we're liable to act, react, rather, we get knocked off balance, we lose our calm, we lose our cool, we lose our composure, we lose our sense of. Of, of uprightness, and when we get knocked by uh, hostility, 
or by frustration or by pain, then um, we didn't have some kind of wisdom, then we'd just be reacting in anger or greed or jealousy or something like that. But the wisdom faculty is actually, wait, hold it, no, it's not that way. So in, in any conscious being's cultivation of wisdom, there is a sense of, of um, a cultivation of sila, of virtue, the sense of wisdom is applied, wisdom stores it, wisdom is the recipient of that. Res- the immediate results of, of sila are there's an increased sense of calm and ability to compose, so it supports samadhi. And the kind of um, leveling out of our reality. That is, the more one cultivates uh, sila, samadhi, panya, just at the level of action and speech and thought, then your sense of reality is much more, um, much less one, much less self-focused. Much more. How does this feel for in for the group in general, or for other beings? That becomes much more. Uh, an instinctive, natural awareness. You don't have to kind of force it. It becomes, you know, in fact, one's awareness spreads, if you like, one's sensi- sensitivity spreads. And so that seal is that which has the characteristic of saying, we see what we don't want to have happen to ourselves, we don't want to see happening to others. And, s- and the other way around, of course. So this hiri uh, and otapa, or the quality of of um, moral shame or um, conscience and sensitivity, conscience of oneself, sensitivity towards others. Mm-hmm. So this is a this of course the very quality of that uh, being more sensitive is that which makes meditation. Uh, necessity to um, endow that sensitivity with calm well-being, to fortify it with uh, with one-pointedness, and makes meditation much more fruitful. So, someone who, who cultivates sila with with this element of discernment, wise attention, and seeing the results of it, then things start to happen. Not they're not done they start to happen. We don't decide to be calm, we find there is a bit more calm. We don't say, I've got to go out and love everybody, we find we actually feel empathy. So it becomes natural, just as one doesn't want to suffer oneself, we don't want others to suffer. So it's not a kind of indoctrination program. It's a natural result, is that there's, there's some calm, some composure, there's some sense of empathy, and uh, these naturally give one both an increased ground, empathy gives one an increased ground for awareness, and the calm gives one an increased flexibility and fluency for awareness. And so you find things like sangwara, sense restraint, is also a natural consequence because of calm, uh, because of the enjoyment of calm, one doesn't want to be doing lots of things, having lots of things. It's 
you find that the quality of calm itself is more fundamentally enjoyable than the quality of excitement. And if this were not the case, then again the path would only be a, a fiction. If it weren't the case that calm and composure is actually more deeply appreciable than excitement, then there would be no uh, samadhi wouldn't be a, uh, an authentic feature of the path. So the fact that this thing happens is to be noted. And if you do this, like the, the sense in which the whole thing is something that's done with systematic attention, actually attending what happens, and you go through it this way, most people don't actually. You know, we kind of, because we're agitated, so we jump in, we do a bit of that, and then so you have to just keep coming back and re, you know, re going through the whole thing again many times. Questioning, you know, is Sita because of programming and conditioning, or is it something that is actually valuable, personally valuable? And if it is, then don't deny that, you know, make, make much of that. And what is the value? What does the value feel like? Yeah. So then you're not kind of uh, being righteous and moralizing, nor are you just repressing things. See that it's actually authentic experience of a deepening sense of integrity and authority. And this is very significant to keep cultivating like that because, of course, morality as a social virtue tends to come not from the roots up but from the boss down. And it doesn't. So it's it's in, it's generally from a social level. It's it's kind of backed up not with calm, but with backed up with a sense of fear, and guilt, and uh, punishment. Yeah. So one's often working against this very perception of morality, even the word itself. Certainly, when you know, 20 years ago, I no, I you know, I wasn't that wicked, but actually, the arithmetic of morality equals happiness. I didn't, you know, it was not an equation that was going, you know, it was kind of traveling equals happiness, fun equals happiness, music equals happiness, you know, but not calm, uh, morality equals happiness, it doesn't, you know, not, not an equation that was going on at all. Morality equals something that somebody else expects you to do, and therefore tends to be something you automatically resist and rebel against. Mm. So it's really, uh, you know, one finds oneself astonished at the kind of changes that occur over the years. You know, talking about virtue and sense restraint, which is 20 years ago, and I was kind of curled up with laughter. Because <laughs> 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 it doesn't seem that, you know, it's just seen as that which leads us out of suffering or leads towards towards happiness, increased well-being. Mm. And that process of review becomes something to accentuate and make much of. Mm. So even if, you know, your, your concentration isn't that good, you're not trying to force yourself to be calm. You always go back to the root to nourish the root. And then the results come from that. 
you know, you don't feed a flower by watering the, f- the flower, you water the roots, and then it gets up there as it grows. So, you so when, you know, one can't concentrate, one can't meditate, then you go back to just thinking, recollecting, and considering, you know, what is good, what is bad, what do these things feel like, recollecting one's own virtues. And this case, and the result of this can be a sense of calm, confidence, integrity. You get a kind of balancing effect. And then perhaps you're able to see with more clarity the, the thing that's, that's disturbing your calm. Yeah. And you see, you know, it's not just a particular sense input, it's, it's the worry or fear and dread or aversion. Mm. wanting something and not wanting something so we we see that these uh, tie in with um, in a way with a trust and a faith in in the roots of wholesomeness Mm. rather than holding and clinging as being the way to to feel okay. Which is what happens when the mind loses its balance. And if you're feeling bad, then cling, hold, possess, grasp, somewhere or another, hang on, rather than go back to realize that this is actually an illusion, doesn't work. And that maybe, you know, to have faith in that what one's wisdom begins to tell you is that you have to yeah, recognize sila and cultivate it towards yourself, towards others, implementing goodness. And so sila also kind of flows out to the into a more active level of things like generosity, service, um, and refraining from uh, deliberately, consciously uh, refraining from harming, hurting, lying, stealing, backbiting, nagging, you know. So this then, these are ways in which the basic root of wholesomeness gives us patience, gives us a sense of dignity, gives us calm, gives us a common ground, and then we begin to let go of the things that are bothering us as being really not essential. It's not essential what somebody's done to me. It's only it's, it's relative. It's not essential what's happening to me today. That changes. What is more essential is if I c- you know if I can actually take responsibility for the quality of the mind, the quality of the action, the quality of the speech that's coming up now. And this is uh, so. Sila is, is this, you know, can be developed and enhanced in this way. Non-cruelty, non-grasping, non-greed, relinquishment of these things. So, is, is one meditation is, is this or cultivation, bhavana. It includes this, and uh, this really shades into what we more generally think of as meditation. 
because it produces a sense of calm and, and, and one-pointedness, centeredness, and it produces this kind of clarity of purpose, and dispassion, detachment, that are necessary for meditation, for, for the more specific meditations. So often meditation came at the beginning just actually um, thinking something through, thinking slowly, thinking carefully, looking at results and sort of questioning things, questioning what, why does this matter, what's important, um, is this changing or not, is this something I can have or hold, is it something that must lead me, is it really worth going for, you know, just that and looking at the results and this quality of recollection is again something that people skip, can find themselves skipping over because they don't, you know, they lack the systematic attention. But uh, certainly over time I, I value this myself and, you know, meditation can be just that for me, just sitting and if it takes, you know, an hour just to get to a point when one feels clear, you know, through through considering things wisely, well that's fine. It doesn't have to be all, uh, you know, switch on the Anapanasati as soon as you cross your legs kind of thing. <laughs> Don't waste a moment. Get what you can out of it. Get going on the old vehicles, the Nibbana kind of stuff. And actually recognizing how the vehicle works. It doesn't work unless you put fuel in it. <laughs> it doesn't work unless you get a you know how to steer and drive. And the first aspects of samadhi are, are the first aspects of meditation are about deliberate, refined kind of thought process. And the way we start to bring our concern down to very simple objects like our own body, our sense of attention and our and our dealing, our response, just down to this body. How to be systematic about that, how to be orderly about that, what the results are when we're actually clearly conscious, not flustered, not opinionated, not obsessed, but actually clearly conscious of a body. And the kind of effort it it takes to be that way. To lift attention out of obsession, out of preoccupation, and place it into just the bodily consciousness with its feeling tones, its sensations, or the elements that make up a body, or the general experience of body, whether it's cramped or ill, lacks of vitality, imbalanced, or whether it can actually, uh, with attention, improve one's well-being, bodily well-being, you know, by evening out attention, by looking after one's body, it's in the act of, of how we sit with it, mm. and the vitality that comes from uh, breathing, the fundamental thing that conditions the body, breathing, if one, if one sits upright, breathes fully, then we get a sense of some kind of bodily calm and brightness, or more so than if we didn't. 
when you begin to learn this. And it's not again, it's not something that you you just do as an order. It's something that you investigate and work on. You see how how it comes around through systematic attention. And seeing that so often you know we are we are only very fragment partially conscious of body at all. A few patches, pleasure zones, pain zones. The rest is just kind of indeterminate blur that sort of glues it all the rest of it together. Something to carry your head around with. So that, that that kind of systematic attention is again something you know, if you spend half an hour just recognizing the toes and the bones and the warmth and the cool and the cramping and how to re- so the body isn't cramped feels good and this is how you begin to cultivate samadhi bringing it together and in this experience then. Um, why it's it has its, it's got this kind of value in the short term, but then it's also got a profound value, and then you begin to recognise um, within that responding to your body that some of the patterns in which ways in which one responds to anything are revealed. You know, indifference, impatience, uh, obsessiveness, um, lack of persistence. You know, getting distracted, uh, you know, di- digressing all the time. So y- you know, you see that this naturally uh, very much brings you by by simplifying your world system down to a much more uh, present and, and directly conscious and directly tangible, simple object: your own body or your own breath, even more so. Then you're getting a a closer reading of the mind's responses and reactions to things. So when you understand this, then again you get a better understanding of samadhi. Rather as silas, morality is something that comes from the boss downwards, so can samadhi. And you can sometimes hear the boss in your mind telling you to shut up and concentrate and be quiet, sit up straight, get it right, don't dither, stop thinking those things, and get on with it. And you can hear it going on and on and on, then generally giving you a rollicking at the end of the day, for having not done it very well. And this is samadhi coming from the boss downwards. And you, it doesn't actually encourage anything, you just kind of feel depressed, thinking, oh no. The only reason why you do it again is because the boss will give you an even harder time if you don't get down to it. <laughs> but if you can find a way, an excuse, like, oh, my mother died, or dog's sick, or <laughs> then you get out of it, just like you would with any kind of yeah. rotten job with a rotten boss. <laughs> so gradually, since meditation kind of dwindles down to something you do when you've got an excuse not to. Duty. And uh, it's, it's, this isn't really a way to encourage it. Uh, it's something to, to, to also to recognise this kind of conditioning because, you know, there you can read books and the Buddha's definitely saying do it and get on with it and practice and don't waste time and this, that and the other. So, you know, just 
of, of the condition, results of this kind of conditioning, you know, how your mind is affected by that. Mm-hmm. What else can the Buddha say? Don't do it. So <laughs> he's got to say one thing or the other, so it's naturally it's very much an encouragement that uh, um, saying this is of great benefit, a great fruit for your well-being, for your welfare. Mm-hmm. But how it works, mm-hmm. how it actually works, is that one, the establishment of the, of the results of good sila give you a sense of composure and authority and, and understanding cause and effect. Starting to see that what really counts is the quality of what you put into something, not what's coming back at you. Not what the world says to you, but what you say to it. Not what your body says to you, but what you say to it. Not even what your, your thinking mind comes at you with, but how you respond to that. And so that kind of the laws or the, the insights that come from Zila are the same as that which, come, which accompanies Samadhi. These are the laws of karma. Mm. So you get starting to see that kind of, hey, there's common root here, common ground between the two, connection between the two, rooted in the same thing. And the same kind of result, you, you, you investigate, you think, you deliberate, you systematically apply with, a, with some faith, and you witness the results. And that witnessing increased sensitivity. So, um, and, the se- and because of the results give you some calm, that same kind of pattern. And to my mind, where a very common way, common point where one goes wrong with this is trying to concentrate. Trying to concentrate, seeing samadhi as concentrate, as some kind of uh, instruction to concentrate. Whereas this may be the result, a concentrated state or a state of samadhi state of ikagata or one-pointedness is the result, but it's not the beginning and it's not something that you arrive at just by a command it's something that, that arises because of the skillful uh, factors that are assembled just as virtue should come from the skillful factors that arise as a precondition so if one's in a hurry to concentrate, then what tends to happen is you cramp, you seize, you shut down, you go numb, you strain. And therefore, certain essential features of samadhi don't occur. And these are um, specifically, specifically um, piti sukha, or the sense of joy, Interest, enthusiasm, enjoying it, and sukha, which means the quality of like a contented, easeful, uh, cool kind of happiness. You know, and these these are, along with the deliberate uh, recollection and applying your your mind, these are the these are the essential these are the ingredients that, that result in give rise to the sense of samadhi. 
So if it doesn't, if you're not applying those, you can't get the results. You can get something, and you may think it's concentration, you may define it as concentration, as a kind of held state, but it doesn't have the fullness of what the Buddha referred to as samadhi. So the results of it, as we've seen, are there's, there's ease and calm, but of a far more uh, extended um, period, because you're getting closer to the roots of the mind. The closer you get to it, then the more powerfully the karmic ingredients that you put into it are experienced. So, um, cultivating samadhi is one of the most um, fortunate kind of karmas that one one can have. The Buddha said this is the highest kind of of happiness, sense happiness you can have, the highest, most pleasant feelings you could possibly have. This is someone who's been through a a fair run of it as a as a you know nobleman, prince, pampered, and someone had a good. You know, crack of the whip and the sense pleasures, and he said, "This is this is the superior. This is longer lasting. It's more accessible. Um, you know, you, you don't need a whole kind of equipment for it, and it, it uh, it's, it's enduring. It's not something that is so fleeting. And again, you see that the that uh, the less exciting it is." The, the the more thorough and enriching the quality of well-being and settledness is. So again, this particular pattern you see occurring. Less excitement equals more well-being, just as with the qualities of sila. And samadhi is, is, is graduated, or can be graduated, through these, what are these jhanas, which are um, say ways of collecting these factors together, and so that the world begins to change. The world of one's experience. So it's very powerful karma. You know, the actual direct experience of the world becomes something that's uh, um, quite radically different. So as the jhana develops, then you, first of all the kind of thinking mind starts to cool out and quiet down and you just have a stronger feeling of, of uh, joyfulness and, and, and calm and ease. And then these also is cool down to something more equanimous and attentive, yeah. mindful and equanimous and attentive, these qualities. Yeah. So the less vibration and as you, when you experience, if you experience meditation more fully, you, you see, yeah, it does make sense because it's uh, the sense impingement itself is kind of agitating. Just having a lot of sense contact is, is it disturbs. Mm. So one feels more inclined, not forced, but more inclined, because just recognizing what is less stress, what is more well-being, and. Uh, Agitation, that which before seemed to be exciting and pleasant, now seems coarse and agitated. Well, that one's tastes change and the mind kind of collects into itself. 
So because of that, we begin to see the mind very much as the determinant, more clearly the mind is the determinant of one's world. So the mind is scattered, the world seems vast and fragmentary and broken up into highly dissociated um, patterns, places, things that are distinctly unpleasant, things that are distinctly pleasant, things that are, you know, kind of highly differentiated. And as the, but as the mind collects, then the distinction between pleasant and unpleasant begin also to fade, and there's a sense in which there's just this quality of equanimity. And this is something that, of course, is comparatively rare for people. But um, it's the way it goes. And just looking at it more, you know, perhaps more basically, then anyone who meditates finds that when their practice is going well, then there is much less uh, need and interest in sense impingement. When it, you know, when we when we get a lot of interest in sense impingement, you can generally recognise well, you know, your meditation practice is a bit rocky right now. And the rocking, of course, we see, you can see there's a, the, the hindrances which hindrances, uh, defilements, chilesas and so on are things that uh, are like continually um, gnaw and nibble away and rage through the mind. And these are so the, from the, one of the most uh, basic um, experiences of meditation, the basic practice of meditation, if you like, is to, is to work with these hindrances through, both through the results of calming and through the quality of applying ethically based attention, wholesome attention, mindfulness, in fact. Mm. Mindfulness is a very, is a continue, is a, that which continually establishes itself upon an object, that which arises and attends to an object. So it's not in itself, it's not a static state, it's something that's activated. Its results are calm, but its basis is a kind of wholesome activity. Activity of, of wisdom. And um, the other uh, salient feature of mindfulness is that it's objective. It, um, it's, it's seeing things as they are rather than how I want them to be. So, the um, so for example, like uh, thoughts or feelings which I don't really like, I don't, uh, have to be seen as they are. Emotions which I find dis- uncomfortable or, you know, embarrassing have to be seen as they are. Uh, bodily states which I find undesirable, distressing, unwholesome have to be seen as they are. And this kind of fundamental theme of, of, of mindfulness is this. Um, and mindfulness is that uh, is a quality that's continually carried through the whole process, whatever level of or category of samadhi we're talking about. It's, it, it's that which is carried through, and we can say that although samadhi has this skillful karmic effect in that it gives rise to well-being, the fact that it carries mindfulness with it is its liberating feature because mindfulness 
um, in this sense is that which begins to separate self-interest from objective understanding and so it's a, it's a wisdom feature and as you practice you see that the roots of all the hindrances are agitation some kind of gets you going you know, it's dullness it's a kind of you know it's something that pushes you wants you to crash out or go to sleep or give up or go away you know, you know, drags you down restlessness desire hunger which is like thirst ill will kind of resisting and these can be coarse and associated with particular sense objects or just much more kind of fundamental leanings and vibrations in the mind kind of sort of background sense of irritability you know tetchy you know not not settled tetchy and irritable or kind of fidgety and restless or wavering and uncertain or indifferent and dull or kind of wanting something not quite knowing what just something don't know what it is but something <laughs> you know? wanting to belong wanting to be you know get down to some pretty uh, non-specific roots to these hindrances and so samadhi is often the, as you cultivate it kind of takes you deeper into these areas over time to more kind of it starts to strip away the excuses for the hindrances and you just get down to the kind of the root conditions and you see that uh, it's because mindfulness is this quality of actually examining and understanding and relating to a hindrance and looking at it rather than just saying, oh no, don't be here. You begin to get the wisdom faculty comes out of mindfulness. And one of the the most uh, continually uh, relevant features of wisdom and relevant features of mindfulness when it's at this level is uh, understanding the stress and the suffering and the agitation that comes from the sense of self, associated with sense of self. Just as we've seen it in, in Sila, how it, you know, when it becomes selfishness, self-centeredness, callousness, indifference and greed, then you see it also at the level of samadhi when it becomes, when you can see it at the kind of the root of all the hindrance, which is a kind of sense of wanting to be something, wanting to belong to something, wanting to have some kind of power, wanting to have some kind of experience, wanting to be thrilled, wanting to be charged up, wanting to be knowledgeable, wanting, just wanting anything, just give me something. <laughs> Not satisfied. You know. And so samadhi, naturally, uh, and the processes of samadhi, which involve enhance and carry mindfulness, in some way allay that by giving rise to the kind of joy and equanimity but more, more usefully also convey the system of liberation to a deeper level of the mind, the roots of the mind. They convey the system of mindfulness and wisdom to the roots of the mind rather than just scattered out over this thought and that feeling and what he sh- said and what she does into just one's self, one sense of self.
And that's the, um, you know, this is the, the axis of, of, of Panya is around this. And when the Buddha said all compounded things are impermanent, changeable, not to be clung to, be vigilant. This is a kind of final statement from someone who's seen to the roots of things. And seeing that uh, if we just take this on board and investigate it and, and have faith in that and put it to the test, then what is the hunger for? What is the what is the need? What is the root craving for? The kind of something that doesn't even seem like a craving, just the basic inclination towards what certainty, permanence of belief, permanence of thought, towards permanence of feeling. I want to be continually happy. Some sort of permanence of status permanence of position, permanence in some kind of level in which I find something I can finally connect to that, that lasts and offers a future. This is the what we called um, bhava, the being, becoming, so, so un, often unquestioned in an ordinary person that it's just a question of what to be and how to how to be it, how to get it, not hey, what's that mean? Is this really intrinsic? Is it some kind of fundamental how fundamental is it? Maybe a fundamental programming. But can we ever really say that we are something permanent? That we ever could be anything permanent? That there's anything that could be permanent? That there is a future that we could know? Can this ever, you know, can it ever be said? Really? The things we can imagine and guess and conjecture and hope for and, you know, angle towards, but can, will they ever stay? How, you know, so, it's, uh, well, you see that, um, that is also the one one just tries to bear out the level of ordinary experience. You know, bodies changing, people are changing. Goodness knows what tomorrow's going to be. I've got a vague idea. We'll call it Sunday, but other than that, you know, sun will come up. I guess probably world will go on for another day. Maybe then somebody doesn't push a button somewhere. But when you get down to the real details of it. What's 1028 going to be like? Don't know. What will I feel like tomorrow? Don't know. What will people say to me tomorrow? Don't know. How will people regard me tomorrow? Don't know. Don't know. And these things are, can have very powerful effects. It's Sunday then. 9th of February doesn't mean anything really, but what somebody's going to say to me at 10:15 is going to really is going to have quite a powerful effect on me, isn't it? And that I don't know. I can't plan for. So these, this whole set, the uncertainty of it all. So the, the 
Panya very much is that which is actually challenging. And then if we recognize how certainty and permanence breaks up, and particularly if we carrying this through in the level of just our experience of meditation, that the thought and the feeling and that kind of drive towards something itself is also subject to change. Then we begin to experience or begin to recognize the need for relinquishment. And relinquishment is something that runs through the Buddha's teaching as a practice of wisdom, as a practice of, of conventional um, sila action, and as a practice of samadhi, it comes up time and time and time again. One abandons this, one relinquishes that, one experiences the cessation of this, one brings around the stopping of that, and because of this, there's calm. Because conditions break up, there's complete happiness. And the ending of these things is, is ease and happiness. And then you just really look at, look into that, you know, as an experience. This is something that, that you can say, even on a kind of tangible, obvious level, even something that perhaps isn't a big deal for you, just something that you can actually just put it down, relax it. What does it feel like? When a hope or an ambition or a, or a need or a kind of... Yeah, just, just, just relax. Mm-hmm. You see yourself kind of actually feel bigger, feel calmer, feel somehow more dignified than just trying to hold it all together and the freedom the taste of freedom that comes from relinquishment and seeing yeah you can get beyond desire and need and you can get beyond yourself but it's not going to come from the boss downwards telling you you've got to do it you know and what a scumbag you are if you don't and what a saint you are if you do it comes from recognizing this is in the moment as that relinquishment is a sign of of great authority, great calm, great peace. So we practice this in ourselves, and it has to be practiced in oneself because it's only here. As the Buddha said, you again in his last tour, you have to be. A, a refuge to yourself. Now we can take this kind of refuge to self means I don't listen to anybody else but me. <laughs> or we can to just slightly accent it to you have to be a refuge for yourself rather than be a refuge for yourself. <laughs> be a refuge for yourself, actually, you know. Be a light to yourself rather than I'm going to be my own light. Mine and nobody else's just for me. But be a light yourself and lights that shine that you know extend are boundless radiant got the general gist of the image <laughs> not, not a little light that cringes in on itself and holds on but something that kind of you know certain quality of expansiveness and, and uh, giving and flowing and you know, brightness and, 
and this comes through uh, you know, holding yourself or attending to this, attending this process of self, but attending it with wisdom rather than with desperation. Mm. So this is what it, it uh, how it, it comes down. If yourself at this moment is something you have to tend to with from moment to moment, you tend to it with sila. Do that. Do it with things like generosity, relinquishment, sending out. Do it with something like letting go of things. Maybe it's something that now is a matter of meditation. You go to the past and the future. Maybe it's something to do with wisdom, really understanding and looking at where one's uh, freedom lies. in this experience that we're having, that all of us are having, the root condition of self, where the Dhamma arises. And it does arise from that. When we take Buddha as our refuge, Dhamma as our refuge, Sangha as our refuge, then unless these are things that actually we see as entering ourself, then they are of limited use. They're just kind of things that get stuck on the outside of it. So offer this for your reflection. Mm.